Welcome to Texas Fame Law Unfiltered. I'm your host, Justin Jackson, alongside my associate attorney, Myron Kamahara. We're the Jackson Law Firm based in Cedar Park, Texas, just north of Boston. We created the show because there isn't a show about Texas family law that cuts through the BS. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth, the good, bad, and the other. But remember, nothing we say is legal advice specific to you. Every case is different. If you would like a free consultation with our office, call us at 512-528-1900 or just visit us on the web at www.thejacksonfirm.com. That's T-H-E jacksonfirm.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to the very first episode of Texas Family Law Unfiltered. I'm Myron Kamihara. I'm an attorney here at the Jackson Law Firm. I'm here with Justin Jackson. Justin, introduce yourself, please. Yeah, Justin Jackson. Uh, thanks for hosting for this very first episode. Of course. And, and the first episode, uh, we like to get to something really, really interesting. Um, it's something that doesn't come up as often, um, but it's judicial bias in a family court setting. Can you elaborate more on that, Justin? Yeah, so uh, I picked this topic for the first episode because it's a question that comes up with clients a lot. Um, we get asked a lot about bias with judges, judicial misconduct, and what I've seen is throughout my career, um, Clients often have doubts about whether judges are fair, and that's a, that's a serious concern because you, know, you you look to the judiciary to be fair, unbiased, impartial, and when the public perceives that's not true or not likely, um, or even just expresses doubt, um, it's really concerning. So early in my career, um, those questions caught me off guard. Uh, why wouldn't an you know an elected judge be fair? Well. Um, despite having that hard time believing such bias existed as the practice went on, I started to realize that there were instances where judges were actually unfair. It could be, um, you know, bias uh, towards a party, a prejudice about a certain topic. And so um, kind of overcame that, that sense of, of being naive just through that experience. You know, the, the hard part about this subject and, being an attorney and you appearing in front of these judges almost on a weekly basis, right? And there is an inclination that may pop through your head. And most of the times when I have come across uh, this idea, I should say, because I haven't um, conveyed it yet to anyone else, it's almost daunting and almost scary. And you want to make sure that you cross your T's and dot your I's before an allegation is communicated. 100%. And, and what you're saying is is really the sense that at times creeps into my mind as well, um, which is there's a chilling effect that when you openly expose bias or prejudice through the kind of things that we're going to talk about today, like what's what are the remedies associated with bias and prejudice? Well, it's really some ugly things. Uh, judicial misconduct can be exposed through uh, disciplinary complaints uh, with the state of Texas, can also be exposed through motions to recuse. And we're going to get over to, into those in more detail a little later in the show. But um, there's a, a, a fear of, well, if we try to expose these things, what's going to happen to my case? What's going to happen? And of course, the lawyer. Uh, how is it going to affect my client? Yes. Right? But they're also worried about how's it going to affect my career. Exactly. So, you know, we've got all these concerns. We, we have loyalty to our client. We have also a, a concern that, well, how is this going to hurt our next client? Right. So we have to weigh all these things. But at the end of the day, um, our firm, we pride ourselves on having the courage to do the right thing, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of what could happen. I think that if you're standing on the right side of things, it, you really shouldn't worry too much about the, the possible backlash. Well, why don't we do this then? Um, why don't you give us a definition of what judicial misconduct is? Yeah, so, and this is not um, word for word what you might find on every website on the internet. Um, there's going to be a whole lot of different definitions, but I'm, I'm taking some of the definitions that uh, are found in uh, the state agency governing uh, judges, as well as some of the other uh, reference points that I've accumulated over my career. Um, one of those uh, elements of definition would be openly expressing improper bias or prejudice 
to either party. We'll get into some specific examples of what could constitute bias or prejudice. Um, another could be in the act of rendering orders, which indicate improper bias. Sometimes an order is just so outlandishly one-sided, it could raise concerns about whether there was bias or prejudice. Um, of course, there's some more obvious ones, inappropriate or demeaning courtroom conduct, such as yelling, profanity, gender bias, racial slurs. Uh, those can come in many forms, and more often than not, they're very subtle. Another is using the prestige of the judicial office to advance private interests. We don't really see that very often, but that's an, an example. And that one is kind of hard to identify and prove, unless it's very blanket anyway. Yeah, we we get okay. I'm gonna I'll t I'll, I'll tell you this. We get the question very often: Is the judge and the opposing counsel on the other side are they best friends? Right. Is there some kind of money exchanging? That's where that one comes into play, but. As much as I am all about holding judges accountable, I have never in my 18 years, working on 18 years, seen that actually happen or even really had strong enough indication that it was. So I, I would like to 99% of the time put that to rest. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in a recent uh, case that I had, um, there was a thought in my client's mind that the judge was biased against him because of his soon-to-be ex-wife, uh, her activities with working on the judge's uh, political campaign. Um, I didn't think so. I've advised him accordingly. And for the most part, I think the judge in this specific case followed the law to the T um, in order to dispel any type of impropriety at all. And I would agree with you on that, that um, really to boil down what you just said, you know, just because an attorney works on a judge's uh, campaign uh, to get reelected or get elected, I mean, that that's not enough to get you anywhere. Um, it, it might smell a little strange, but the reality of the matter is judges truly do rely on attorneys to help them with the election process. And it, I've even helped some judges with their election process. And, and the reality is, I, I not only don't feel like there's any bias or prejudice towards me, I, I certainly would never ask for it or even suggest it. Um, well, moving on to the next one, though, under that category uh, would be improper communication with only one of the parties to a case. And, you know, it's known to us as ex parte communication. And, and obviously one side um, and one party is what I mean by side cannot speak to the judge or cannot communicate with the judge and vice versa. The, the court should not be communicating with just one one side and one or one party, I should say. Yeah, and just kind of like the the last one you talked about, where the there's a sense sometimes that the judge and the attorney are in cahoots with one another. Um, I likewise have not ever in my career um, encountered a situation. I'm not saying they could never exist. It's just not as common as clients tend to think. They tend to think that if the case isn't going well and and they just suspect that maybe there's some private dialogue happening. Maybe there's a, a private meeting or things like that. I would just say that, again, I'm not saying it could never happen. I just haven't encountered it. So it's extremely rare. You know what? I, I would agree with you. I don't think I've ever had that feeling where I thought that there was improper communication from the court yeah. to, to the other side. Um, I, I think the county that we practice in, uh, you know, most often is Williamson County and Travis County. And both the court the courts in both counties and their staffs are very knowledgeable about judicial, um, the, the canons of, of the court, right? And, and what they can and cannot do. And I think they pretty much follow that to the T. And so I've never had a thought in my career that a court has improperly communicated with only one party. Uh, they're normally included on all emails, right? All parties are absolutely. And of course, the last one is another obvious one. If the judge has any alcohol, drug, or mental health problems, haven't encountered that, um, except actually one time. There was a judge years ago. I won't name the name, but this judge, uh, worked in Williamson County, did have a declining um, mental capacity, and uh, it wasn't obvious. It was subtle. Um, he ended up fortunately retiring, but. Um, that that became an issue, but that's extremely rare as well. You know, one of the things I want to highlight before we move on to the next topic is that 
This topic, I'm, I'm not disparaging the judiciary in the slightest. Um, I, I would say the vast majority of judges are good and exercise sound judgment. Really highlighting this episode because there are some outliers that that aren't doing things the right way. And even the judges that aren't doing things the right way, I think even a good subset of those, they're not intentionally doing it. Um, I think sometimes there is just a subconscious bias or prejudice. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, people are judges are human, right? Um, even their staff uh, composed of human, the human element. So I would agree that it's not always intentional. I mean, there are those outliers. I just haven't run past those outliers that did it intentionally in my career yet. But moving on from that first, the definition of judicial impropriety. Um, this judicial bias has to be rooted in some type of law. And the law is set out by the Texas Supreme Court um, in the Texas Code of Judicial Conduct. Is that right? That's that's correct. And right. we're not going to walk you through every element on the website there because, uh, you know, the listeners can certainly go find that. But I wanted to give them some insight to save time and kind of give my own angle on, you know, the Texas Code of Judicial Conduct and and uh, kind of the ins and outs of it. So a uh, few of the, the highlighted areas there is, number one, it, they state that a judge must be faithful to the law. And again, Texas Code of Judicial Conduct is, it is the standard. It is what judges have to abide by. So it says a judge must be faithful to the law. I know the lessers are thinking to themselves, well, obviously they must be faithful to the law, but it's so important that, uh, they, they literally reminded judges, judges of this because they know that they're human beings, just right. like you said earlier. Right. And it's important to, to remind them that number one is despite how you feel about a certain topic, the law is what matters. You know what is uh, strange, not strange, maybe strange is a bad word, but the word faithfulness for some reason when it's used in a code or a statute, um, you always go back to the separation of church and state. For some reason, I associate faithfulness to a religion or, or, or some context in religion. And it's kind of weird for me to see faithfulness inside of a, a cult, you know. Well, it, you know, I didn't think about that angle. But now that you bring it up, um, it really kind of elevates that principle to being sacrosanct. Like it is a holy principle. I would agree. That was my point, right? Because it kind of elevates the obligation now, right? Um, the second one, though, in this uh, or under the Texas uh, Code of Judicial Conduct is a judge must be patient, dignified, and courteous to everyone in the courtroom. And you and I have many experiences with this. Uh, courteous, uh, patient, dignified have different meanings, uh, could be subjective at times as well, um, you know, based off the attorney's experiences and the judge's experience. So what has been your experience with this part of it? Well, I think if a client were to read this, who had actually been in a family law courtroom, I think a very large number of them would say, well, right there, I have a violation. This judge was not patient. This judge maybe in their mind didn't act at all times dignified and courteous. They weren't always nice to me. That's not really what it means necessarily um, because the judge has another requirement. Um, and I didn't mention this, uh, but it is one of their requirements. They're required to uh, establish a, an orderly courtroom and an orderly courtroom can take many forms as well. So courts are given a great discretion on how they maintain an orderly courtroom. For example, I, I've had clients, unfortunately, uh, not always follow my advice and, and maybe say things on the witness stand that the, the judge uh, realized was not an answer to the question. And so the judge had to reestablish that order and maybe scold to some degree my client and and that could be perceived as a violation but i i just think it's all context specific so you know patient dignified courteous i think you kind of know it when you see it it's when a judge just really out of nowhere is not dignified not patient not courteous and there's no context really for it yeah i would agree with that i mean there's only a reason of when a judge has to maintain order in his or her court and in my experience, it definitely came after numerous warnings and then 
in an order from the court came down and by order i mean a uh almost scolding in a way by the court that the party can or cannot do a certain thing that the judge um is is you know trying to maintain um decorum and order in this court okay um but yeah i would agree it it's normally at least couple warnings to the party and then a very stern talking by the judge um as to what can and cannot be done in court sure um, and this goes with attorneys and clients like you used who are testifying um in, in my case it would come i can think of one very specific example where a client was um testifying to hearsay evidence um and the judge repeatedly told that client that he or she cannot say what he or she heard from someone else and, and, and made it into evidence. Sure. And, and it can just escalate when the client doesn't listen. And of course, sometimes the client is so absorbed in the testimony, they just don't really listen. They're in speaking mode. But anyway, that's, that's really what, that, that really kind of covers that, that topic on the patients and the, and the judge being dignified. Um, that brings us, of course, to a judge uh, being required to perform their duties without bias or prejudice. Um, and this is really the corollary to the first one about faithfulness to the law. So not only did they say the judge has to follow the law, which is item one, they kind of repeat it, but in the opposite way by saying, and don't let other things that are not the law become the basis of what you do. So, for example, if you're following the law, by implication, there is an exclusion of bias and prejudice because you really can't be faithful to the law and also biased and prejudiced um, unless just by magical luck, they all align. Right. Um, where your bias and prejudice just happens to lead to the right faithfulness to the law outcome. But that, that just seems like an almost impossibility. So there's just, there's a whole lot of reminders here of judges sticking to the book, not to what they think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and, and I would agree with that. It's almost repetitive in a sense uh, where, but in this case, totally they use the actual, I guess, legal, um, terminology of shall, which is obligatory in our field. Uh, the last part of it, though, uh, it says that a judge cannot, even by words or conduct, manifest bias or prejudice. Well, what does this mean? Yeah, I think this is important because even if the judge were to, by chance, get the ruling right, it still doesn't give them permission to just say whatever or do whatever they want in the courtroom. Um, they, they still have to follow these same principles of patience, being dignified, being courteous, not expressing bias, not expressing prejudice. I think that's important because even if, uh, again, the outcome is right, it can be perceived as wrong if the bias and prejudice entered. It's almost like if you wrap a gift wrong, you wrap it the wrong way, it won't be opened the right way either. And so I, I kind of think of it that way that... Uh, a client's sense of, of the the pureness of the judiciary is called into question, I think, when, uh, despite the ruling, they just have this sense of, did you hear what the judge did? Did you see what the judge did? And it tarnishes the judiciary in that sense. And, the, and these rules are designed to try and uh, uphold the sanctity of the judiciary as pure and, you know, untarnished. You know, I, I get that. And... The opposite may be true too, though. Sometimes the judge, and you said by the book, has to go by the book. Sometimes they're handcuffed by the book as well and make comments out of perhaps personal beliefs that don't infringe on what we're talking about with biases here. But they're handcuffed by the book and make comments that are perceived to be a bias against a certain individual. Uh, but not necessarily a bias that would violate the judicial code. And they express that to us, uh, they express, express it to our clients, obviously, um, when they don't agree with their behavior. But I think the opposite is true too. It, it also handcuffs them when they, when they have to follow the law and are unable to make a decision that they morally believe would help the situation. 
Yeah, no, I've seen that a bunch of times. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the, the most obvious examples, though, of, of bias. What would you say that is? I mean, most obvious uh, would be race and gender. Okay, that's it, when I say obvious, I don't mean frequent. In fact, I would say race. I have yet to encounter what I think was a race biased outcome. Um, and, and I, and again, I'm not indicating that that has never happened and would not happen. Um, certainly, I think in, in different courts, different types of cases, um, it might manifest itself differently. But in family court, I just really haven't seen race as something that, at least to the extent that it was blatant, came out. Wow. Um, we don't have to elaborate, but you actually had feelings that came up within you, obviously, that you felt like race was part of a decision. You know, there have been some part of the thing about race is um, I would say majority of the time um, the different uh, races uh, tend to have children with one another in right. this of the same race. Right. So it's hard for you to say, well, it was a race based outcome when there's a mother on one side, a father on the other side, and they're both the same race. That is true. Right. Now, when there is a different race right. in each of the parties, um, you sometimes wonder, that's all I can really say is sometimes you'll wonder at times, again, no real indication as to whether it was, the outcome was race-based, but, um, you, you know, my loyalties to my client run very deep. So right. I'm always looking for reasons as to why a client got a bad result. Right. And you, you're, that's, that's an area where your brain will at some point go to, uh, not reflexively, but just searching for answers. But it, it, like I said earlier, um, extremely rare where I've seen any indication whatsoever for race. Right. I mean, we normally see this perhaps, and I'm not even talking about my cases or my past experiences, but in case law where it's a juror that has a racial bias. But I don't think I've ever felt it in any one of my cases or, or even from the judge based off the decision the judge made. The other one, though, on the flip side... Gender is very, very, um, not complicated, but it, it's a question that comes up a lot, uh, especially when I do my consultations, because, and I get a lot of men, and men have the belief of perception that in a custody case, or even in divorce cases with children, that, you know, mom is is given preferential treatment. Would you agree with that? Oh, totally. Um, that's that there's, there are entire Facebook groups dedicated to this. There's, uh, organizations dedicated towards this. Uh, you know, one of the, the big elephant in the room in family law is that men are untreated fairly in family court, uh, as opposed to women. Uh, I would agree. That's just the big elephant in the room. Now, as with many things, there is some truth to that. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's all the time, but I think it's pervasive enough that um, these groups have given rise because it, it is pervasive enough. And uh, that I would say that the gender um, bias that I've seen is combined with case type. So I'm going to combine one of my examples that we're, you know, we're going to get to a little later, which is gender and case type. Um, that's where there's a child custody case. Um, when there's a child custody case, it's almost always the norm that mothers win primary custody, uh, especially when it's a close case. Right. Um, the, the, the tie break typically goes to the mother. Um, I've seen that time and time out. We've done everything we can to you know tilt the tide in favor of our client. And it's just, if you do the statistics, it's concerning that it's almost always the mother that wins the primary custody. Yeah, statistically, I guess there would be a gender bias then if the mom is always winning custody, or primary, I should say. And what I've seen is it's really based upon uh, some antiquated psychological data. So uh, many, many years ago, there was this, uh, there were studies done about, um, you know, the outcome of, of child custody cases, um, you know, based upon the child either residing with mother or father. And there was some kind of determination made, I'm paraphrasing all this, that it was better for a child to live primarily with a mother. Well, that was, you know, 50 plus years ago, 
women rarely worked outside the home and they handled almost all the childcare. Right. And that has obviously changed, um, you know, and now we have mothers and fathers working full-time jobs and having to balance those loads plus balance uh, oftentimes very equally the child rearing and the child responsibilities. So times have certainly changed, but the judiciary, as with many things, is extremely slow to adapt to changing times. So one of the things our firm, and I know you do as well, is we like to try and impress upon courts um, in a subtle way that, you know, we're dealing with a situation that is different than the kind of the tradition that they've been handed from old judges and prior judges right. and prior judges. Right. You know, the every time I get into one of these uh, custody battles and I represent that, I, I go through my questions, right? And basically those questions are gonna be they're gonna be pointed towards who is the primary nurturer, caretaker of these kids. Um, I would say it's about half an hour. Some of my clients, some of that old um, I guess parenting task uh, from the past have kind of leaked over to now, even though it's a two income household, uh, but mom still does a lot of the uh, communications with the school, communications with the medical providers, uh, setting up the appointments, dropping off and picking up from school. Um, and, and most of the primary caretaking uh, duties and, and dad is just working. You know, dad is there, but for the most part, or excuse me, I should say 50% of the time, I feel as though those old feelings are 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 in my clients today. Um, there are the other 50% though, where dad and mom are equal, um, where they share in these tasks. Um, let's say mom makes the appointment, but dad takes to and from the doctor's appointment. So that is, that is equal. They're both working outside the home. And for the most part, I have seen some judges award dad primary, some judges award mom primary. It would just depend on the, the facts, but I'm talking in an equal 50-50 situation where both mom and dad are splitting uh, the primary caretaking task of the kids. Um, it's interesting though, because I haven't looked at the statistics like you, you did, um, but I mean, would you agree, Justin, that statistically there is a gender bias, even though not intentional? Oh, there, there's, it's really indisputable. There's an extreme uh, statistical gap in terms of case outcomes. What are we talking about here though? Like, um, what are the figures? Well, I, I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have like the latest numbers. I can just say that there's a, there's a number of different statistics that have emerged about this and it depends on what date range that they're evaluating right. and the taste, the case type and which jurisdiction, of course, in different jurisdictions are going to have different laws, but in Texas, um, you know, it, there's just, it's indisputable that it is heavily skewed in, in favor of women in terms of the outcome. Now, right. you know, naysayers would say, well, there's reasons for that. You know, you haven't gone into the specifics of each case. And, and that is true. Um, I'm, we're really just highlighting the fact that there, in my experience, there's no doubt instances where improper gender-based bias based upon antiquated gender roles um, have really dictated case outcomes and that it's incumbent upon the attorneys and the parties to hold judges accountable on those things. Yeah. Um, there, you know, besides the two main ones that we were talking about here, but there's also less obvious biases. Uh, you want to go into some of those examples? Yeah. So less obvious examples. Um, these are the ones that creep in um, very subtly and clients may not notice them. They may, they may not. But I want to highlight some of this. One is just appearance. Um, what do you look like? Um, are you short? Are you unkept? Are you kept? Are you? Is your hair long and crazy? You have a mohawk. Uh, you know what's your personality like? Um, this is another example. Uh, for example, I have had clients that are somewhat assertive, somewhat strong, uh, strong with their voice. Right. And I've I've seen judges react negatively to the way that they talk. Uh, that's not an appropriate reaction for a judge to react negatively just to the way that they talk. Um, you know, I've even had some women clients, they have a very assertive voice and seen judges just kind of look at my client, uh, almost as if, you know, you shouldn't be talking so loud. I mean, it, right. it, you know, there's also uh, examples of job history. Um, uh, 
some of these job history examples just would blow people's mind um, in terms of how I've seen them play out. Um, I had a client who was uh, who was ex-military. And before the hearing had even started, the judge said, well, I, I think your client's going to need mental health treatment. And of course, I'm, th- I'm asking, like, how would you possibly know that? Right. Well, because I was military and I know what they go through and oh, he needs mental health treatment. Wow. And I'm just thinking to myself, the hearing hadn't even started and you're expressing a very proper bias, which is typically in favor of military members. Right. Very, very outwardly bi- uh, against. And I think, it, it, you know, for him to if, if, we, if I had an opportunity to converse with this judge and you know, him being ex-military, I'm sure he would have thought I'm helping this man out. Right. I want him to get mental health treatment. Yes, yes. Instead, he actually was hurting him in his case. So it's, that's kind of an example of where I don't think the judge intended to hurt my client, but it was a subconscious bias that unknowingly hurt my client. Right, right. And that goes back to us saying that for the most part, it, it's not intentional when, when these biases come up. Totally. Um, this is an interesting one uh, because job history and your military example is is very interesting. But, uh, you know, where you have women who work in, um, say, a strip club, um, have you ever come across a judge that exhibited a deliberate bias based off a woman's profession? Yeah. So, you know, that we, I had a client that she worked at a strip club. She wasn't a dancer. She was a cocktail waitress. Um, and she served drinks. Um, she probably was a little scantily clad, but it came out in testimony that that's what she does. Right. And doing what she could to provide for her kids. Um, it, it wasn't something that was publicly known until really that testimony. And the judge really stopped the proceeding and just asked her to repeat, where do you work again? And she told him, and it was concerning to me because, yeah, I, I get that that is not the ideal place for a mother to work. I don't. I think we could think about other places it would be better for a sure. mother to work, sure. safer, right? Safer places for a mother to work. She could be waiting at Chili's. The only difference is yes. that there are other activities going on at her place of work. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, again, our office, we don't judge anybody based upon any of these things. And I hope that's very clear with what I'm saying. But this judge certainly had a different opinion. The judge was very judgmental about it. And I can't remember the exact words he used, but it was something to the effect of, you have no business working there as a mother. And I, I just, I took exception to that because again, as much as, you know, I wouldn't want my daughter working in an environment like that. Sure. It's not my place to be dictating to another adult where they work as long as it's legal and they're, they're doing their own thing in a private manner in a way that's not affecting the child in the slightest. I, I agree. Um, and I'm going to throw a curveball at you here because I kind of want to go off script because it's kind of interesting really quick. Um, is there an age bias in, in this, uh, like uh, the judge in question that we're talking about here? It, was there a generational bias, I should say? Uh, and that's a good point. Um, you, you can sometimes get a sense before you enter the courtroom what types of biases that you'll experience just based upon the age of the judge, like sure. you just said. Sure. I mean, this was a this is a somewhat older judge. Um, he's getting a little long in the tooth. He's probably towards the latter part of his career. And of course, there's another thing too, which is what's the culture of the county you're in? Uh, there's some, let's just call it county pressures. Judges are elected. And so the culture of the county, they have to uphold that culture. So if the culture of the county is we are a very uh, conservative so, county and we don't tolerate anything right. that's others might consider unseemly. Well, I have to find a way to address that, even though it's not really part of their role to tell her where she has to work. It's like he felt this, like some kind of pressure to make that statement, to uphold this, the, the values of the county. You know what? To kind of tie it up in a bowl here and, and make the co- correlation here, is generational bias, though, also good. It, it's probably leaked over into the statistics, the statistics that we're talking about here, where mom, you know, is, is a word primary. Well, it's interesting you say that uh, because um, I hadn't really thought about it until you just raised it, but there's a, a fairly 
fairly younger judge in our county, Williamson County, that he has, in fact, um, been one of the few judges to actually um, grant 50-50 type visitation schedules. Um, it kind of take a very middle approach to trying to handle, um, you know, uh, cases involving men and women, which which I find refreshing because it's very different than the traditional standards that you typically see with older judges, where they're very close-minded. They have kind of a one-size-fit-all, uh, you know. And again, mother typically wins primary. Yeah, I agree with that, and I know exactly what you're talking about. In fact, um, just to kind of go off topic again, but I think we should do another episode, or at least another uh, one episode of ours, where we talk about our different cultures. Uh, based off the culture of the county. And that's kind of interesting too, though. Yeah, it really is. Anything um, else to wrap up the, you know, um, I guess the, the biases that are not obvious to, to clients and, and to to anybody else besides attorneys and, and courts? Yeah, um, you know, really quick, you know, sometimes tattoos matter. I would always just recommend that clients cover up your tattoos. Don't make it a, a statement to the judge because to me, some, anything that is not evidence um, has a risk factor associated with it. It's either going to be something the judge likes or doesn't like. So I always say cover up your tattoos because I've seen, uh, I've had a client come in with sleeves exposed and it just, it, it could create with a conservative old judge this bias. And I don't want that. Hey, you're right. Um, one other um, important one is the judge's background. So it doesn't hurt to look a little into who your judge is just to get a sense, maybe almost a warning um, of sorts on what's this judge's work experience. Uh, you know, what's the judge's you know, affiliations? Like kind of where has he come from? You know, does he, has he had a divorce in the past? Has he been involved in a child custody case in the past? Um, you know, what's funny about that is that most of the time we advise based off our knowledge and experience of the court, the specific court. Do you ever advise, um, and I just thought about this now, or, or perhaps I do it subconsciously, I just haven't articulated it until now, but do you advise based off the judge's personal past that you know of? I have. Uh, I have because I've... Anticipating I've, the bias that could be there, but not in te- in, in, an intentional bias, right? That's right. Um, sometimes we just we consider what types of information and facts to really highlight and knowing what the judge might've gone through or what the judge experienced, or maybe, maybe we don't as forcefully present certain things knowing what the judge has experienced. It's just very calculated and it's dependent on, of course on the judge, but I think it's important just to at least know the lay of the land. What um, one, one other example for wrap up some of these less obvious biases is case type preference. So this has re- this is a really interesting one because it has nothing to do necessarily exactly with your client. It can be any client. Right. It's just that when this type of case comes in, the judge already knows what he's going to do, he or she, uh, based upon the type of case. So one example was, um, it was an awful example, and, and I'll, I'll give you the, a, a little cheater bit of information. I got fired at the end of this case. Okay. Very badly fired. Actually, the before I think I had barely gotten into the hallway, I think that she was already on the phone with her father and I had been fired. Okay. So that's how badly this went. Um, but we're in front of this judge. Um, she, there was unmarried parents. They had like a one and a half year old kid and the dad wanted to change the child's last name to his. Um, it's not a terrible request. I mean, it, it happens fairly often right. where, you know, these t- two unmarried parents have a child and the mother initially has a child with her last name. Well, little did the judge not know, but the mother had really only resisted it because her parents wanted their last name as a child. So there was a little bit of an in-laws battle going on. It was kind of a proxy war. Mm-hmm. Um, the dad's uh, parents were really the one be- ones behind the name change. The mother's parents were really behind resisting the name change. Right. Both parents weren't really all that concerned. Okay. But we walk in front of the judge um, there are legal requirements of the family code about name changes of children, meaning the court has to make certain findings. Mm-hmm. It's not simply a, you file the, the request for the name change and the dad automatically gets it. Right. It's, it's, not, not, a, it's not a per se rule. Yeah. No. So there's a lot of things the judge is supposed to see, consider, and, and evaluate sure. before they even get there. Well, we walked up to the judge. I hadn't said a word. My None of the parties, none of the attorneys, nobody had said a word. 
the judge starts scolding my client. He says, I have no idea why you're here. I always grant the name change for the father. You're wasting my time. And, she, and he, the coup de grace was, he said, if I ever see you in my courtroom again, I will remember you. Oh my God. Yes. My client starts crying. She's sobbing. Right. I'm stunned. My jaw's to the floor. Okay. Right. I had no idea. And, you know, I knew that it would be a challenge to fight the case, but I thought at least the judge would let us have some testimony sure. about the topic. Yeah. And it was awful. Now, that's a perfect textbook scenario where you've got bias that is so pervasive that the judge did not follow the law. Like we talk faithfulness to the law. Yes. There wasn't even an opening of the book to yeah. see what the law was. Right. It was just, I am the judge and I will tell you what's going to happen. And right. I don't care right. what the law says. Right. So anyway, that's a case type preference. Um, and that's a unique one. That's an interchange, but you'll see them in other cases too. Um, but that's just an example. That's interesting because just based off the case and not even knowing the parties before they even come in, the judge has made a decision or is leaning towards a certain way, I should say. Yep. Right? Unless something changes, here's a her mind, right? Um, the I had no idea that this this case type existed until you told me about this. I haven't had um, a case type preference bias that I in my career at all. Um, this one in this case, though, I mean, this was all set on testimony on on record. I'm assuming, right, for this judge. It, well, and that's the thing is sometimes they'll get away with these statements by it was, I might have actually been off the record. He might've called us up there uh, and some corporates, you got to watch for this, by the way, all the listeners, if your judge is talking, you need to look over the court reporter or at least your attorney needs to, there should be typing right. because there are some savvy court reporters that know their judge is a little crazy. Right. And this court reporter in particular, he would, he would typically not type when he knew the judge was going to make a kind of a crazy statement. Oh, wow. And, but it, they get away with it sometimes by not calling the case, uh, not, not specifically calling the case. There's some ways they can have these candid quote unquote discussions off right. the record. Right. And that's kind of what, maybe how he got away with it a little bit. Without specifically yeah. saying, let's go off the record. I want to jump though into um, what can be done about this? Because really the, the point of this podcast, other you know, in terms of this first episode is of course, one to talk about what the problem is, right? but the solution is extremely important. And right. that is um, either a judicial complaint or a motion for recusal. I want to talk about both of those. Now, first of all, my experience is we, and we've covered this a little bit, but the vast majority of lawyers do not want to pursue either of those. And, and the reason is, uh, as we said a little bit earlier, um, it's career suicide. At least it's perceived that way. Yes. If I attack a judge, I'm going to have to appear back in front of that judge. So why would I file a motion to recuse or a judicial complaint? Uh, my perception is that's the cowardly approach. Uh, and I also think it's largely untrue. Um, I have, and our firm has um, filed recusals, has filed judicial complaints, and our experience has not been career suicide or anything like that. Right. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, when, when you do it for the right reasons and you have the right information, judges realize they won't tell you this and they won't admit it, but they'll realize they screwed up and they will show you respect. They'll show your clients respect. So when you come back to the courthouse on the next case, they'll look at you and realize this guy is not afraid of me. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to attack. As a matter of fact, if I were to attack him and his client, I would face hot water. Right. I don't want to do that. I want to keep myself aligned with what the law states and not go beyond it. So you're saying that rather than career suicide, as is the perception with all younger attorneys, I would assume, and perhaps even older attorneys. I mean, even us talking about it now, where we, and, and the firm has done it, I, I still have part of me, it, there's an uneasiness about it. I just want to make sure that I'm right and I'm making the complaint and it's substantiated, right? That, that's, my, that's my fear. It's not necessarily career suicide. But you're, what you're saying is that it actually keeps makes the judge do his or her job better. I totally agree. And again, it's it's about do you have an attorney who knows when this must be pursued? Right. Because it is truly going to be the exception. It's going to be very rare. It is not the case where I got a bad ruling, Mr. Jackson. I listened to your podcast. It's time to file a judicial complaint. <laughs> right. It's not right. okay. You know, 
vast majority of cases, even with the terrible outcome, even with the judge acting a little erratic at times, it's not a judicial complaint. It is not a motion to recuse. Uh, but it's just knowing that it's their judiciary, knowing that your firm has a reputation that if something goes awry, they are willing to, in a calculated basis, pursue the remedy that their client deserves. So tell me what a judicial or what the difference is between a judicial complaint and a motion to recuse. Yes. So judicial complaint is I'm really looking for the state to discipline the judge. It is not removing your judge. Well, technically it can lead to suspension. We'll talk about that, but it is not uh, necessarily in, in the vast majority of scenarios going to get your judge off the case. It's just to report misconduct and then the state will either privately or publicly discipline the judge if it's founded. Um, it's filed with the state agency um, that's dedicated towards judicial misconduct. It's called the State Commission on Judicial Conduct. Um, you can find their website at scjc.texas.gov. Um, they'll walk you through the steps. It's not hard to submit a judicial complaint. Again, I would urge caution on this. Just because it's easy to go on a website and lodge a complaint, we yes. don't do it. Yes. I'm not urging any of the listeners to take retaliation against all the judges that gave them bad results. That is a terrible uh, thing to do. That's that's really harassing to the judiciary. I mean, most of these judges are just doing their job. By okay? the way, we should probably drop the disclaimer right now that listening to this podcast is not legal advice at all. Sure. And, and in the introduction, I do say that, but it's worth always repeating. Sure. Nothing we have said is specific to a certain Sure, sure. I mean, it is Let me ask you a question that's probably asked by a client that's involved in this situation. How long does it take for, um, should, should this conduct be found? How long does it take for, for the investigation? Or, sorry, let me, let me rephrase it. That was a bad question. How long does it take for the investigation to get completed? Uh, easiest way to put it is a long time. Every case is different, but I will say judicial complaint is no quick remedy. Um, they take their time on it. Um, it's an independent state agency. It's not run by judges, you know, who are just helping each other. Yeah, that wouldn't make but sense. No. what I will say is it takes a while to get anything done. And it is almost all the time leading to in the, in the sense of a true and founded complaint, it's just going to lead to some private discipline usually. So you're, I still, I'm not discounting the importance of it. I'm just letting people know that what will be accomplished with that is not what could be accomplished in the next remedy, which is recusal. Right. And and just to kind of echo you, I, I think it's important for these investigations to kind of do everything correctly, though, because, you know, really it's a person's reputation at stake, right? Who's yeah. also a public figure. So, you know, I want to, we want the process to, to unfold as it's going to unfold based off facts and substantiated facts, um, whatever the outcome is, right? Uh, whether there is a finding of judicial misconduct or not. But I, I, I almost like that there is a process that's independent from um, <laughs> other judges making decisions about judges. Of course. You know? of course. Yep. <laughs> All right. You, you were saying, uh, before I interrupt you, a motion for recusal. Tell me about that. Yeah. So... Uh, the topic is found in Rule 18A and Rule 18B of the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure. Um, you can find everything I'm talking about there, but I'm going to give you some high points. Um, motion of recuse is this judge has done something so improper that this judge can no longer sit on my case. This judge has to go. And uh, again, it's the outlier where this should happen, but when it, when it exposes itself, the question, of course, is when must it be filed? The answer is always immediately. Uh, there are some time periods that the rules set forth, but my advice is you do not delay one day when the, the issue has arisen. Uh, you need to file a written motion for recusal. The moment that the bias or prejudice becomes so pervasive, severe, that it's interfering with the judge being impartial and following the law. Uh, and when you say immediately, what you mean after either a final hearing or do, even during or after a temporary orders hearing as well in, in, while the case is pending? Now, of course, it becomes a moot point to recuse a judge, generally speaking, if there's no appellate process going, uh, when a final ruling has been rendered. So you don't really 
most of the time you're not going to recuse a judge after a final ruling has been made. Um, I guess there could be some very odd fact pattern where you could, but it's going to be something happened before your case is over. Let's just call it that. And that's something, the moment it arises, immediately file in writing your motion or cues. Now, for those of you who are pro se, file your written motion or cues. For those of you who have an attorney, have a very candid discussion about it. Uh, have them honestly, without that cowardly component we talked about earlier, right. discuss it with you and not just be reflexive. Because there's a lot of lawyers that would say, I, I will never file a motion or cues. Right, right. If you haven't, not, this is really important. If you have a lawyer working for you or you are interviewing a lawyer working for you who says, I will never file a motion or accuse, do not hire that lawyer ever. That is them saying they will not give all of the relief and possible remedies available to their client, which to me calls into question their loyalties. Their loyalties are not to a judge. They're not to making money. Their loyalties are to their client. Right. And so well, it should be to their client. They must be. To yeah, yeah, it must be. That's right. right. You're right. Um, tell me about the process, okay? We file, So generally speaking, right, you file a motion, you set up a hearing, and you get an order on that hearing. So, so with a motion to recuse, though, you file this motion. Are you still, is the motion still heard in front of the same judge? Yeah, great question. It actually is passed along to uh, the regional presiding judge. Um, that's important because the regional presiding judge is usually uh, nowhere near, and I say usually, usually nowhere near in proximity to that judge, not in the same courthouse, sometimes in a different county. Um, so you, you're generally speaking going to get a new set of eyes on this, not right. the judge's buddy, hopefully. Right. Um, yeah, I guess there's a scenario where the regional presiding judge and your judge are friends, but it's, it's not as likely. Um, so you will get a different set of eyes on it. I got you. Well, the, so once the regional presiding judge hears the case then, and oh, is the case, is a decision rendered on record that day or are, are our clients waiting or even pro se litigants? Are they waiting for a written order, kind of like the appellate process? Yeah, there is a little bit of a waiting. I will say for motion recuse, the ruling comes about a lot quicker, I think, than a judicial complaint. Because a judicial complaint is something's already happened. We're just going to decide whether we should discipline that person. For motion to recuse, it's this judge is still on that person's case. You know, if there's going to be a problem that we need to take this judge off the case, we need to do it soon. So they, they typically don't delay too much on those. And it's fairly prompt in terms of when you get your. I see. Is there a standard that the regional presiding judge has to use to, you know, to, um, to make a ruling in, in such cases? Yeah. So rule 18B will allow recusal. Um, and there's a whole bunch of delineated items as far as when recusal is proper, but we're going to focus for this episode on, on the bias concepts. I gotcha. uh, the two major bias concepts in 18 beer. Number one, the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned or two, the judge has a personal bias or prejudice concerning the subject matter or a party. Um, and we're not going to repeat all that prior bi bias or prejudice conversation we had earlier, but all the examples, all the discussion we had earlier, if it fits any of those uh, concepts and there's enough evidence um, to support it, then the judge can be recused. What is the evidence? Typically what it requires is you order a transcript mm -hmm. of the proceeding and this, the, the transcript needs to basically support what you're, what you're attesting to. There theoretically could be something done off the record where an affidavit or something else could be used where the transcript doesn't show it. Maybe the lawyers are sorry. Maybe the judge is pointing or shouting or doing something that the record doesn't necessarily show. But generally speaking, it's going to be the transcript and maybe some affidavits. You know, what's interesting to point out, I think the number or the second second point that you hit was is kind of it's easy, easier to understand. But the first point of of identifying a bias by a reasonable person. That was the, that was the first point that you brought up. Um, a lot of a lot of people and and some of my clients as well will ask me, 
you know, what is reasonable. Can, can you tell us what reasonable would be uh, or what the reasonable person standard would be? Because that's part of, of um, the, the standard for the reasonable presiding judge when, you know, reviewing a motion to recuse. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking, you're really highlighting that term might reasonably be questioned. Well, reasonably, of course, you have a reasonable presiding judge uh, who's going to put on his judge hat, of course, and go, how do judges reasonably act in these scenarios? Right. And the key that I'm not going to let the wind out of the sail here, but I, I want to throw a little bit of shade on what we're talking about. Judges uh, understand and know that they have a lot of discretion to yes. not only uphold decorum in their yes. court, as we talked about earlier, but to uh, just, just have leeway. They don't have to operate flawlessly. Right. Um, it's just a question of how far over the line did they go or, or even did they go over the line? And my point though, is not a reasonable person. This is what a reasonable judge would have done in this situation. Oh, for sure. Right. And yes. so a lot of people get confused about that. It's and, and not all of us are judges, that's why, you know. So but I think you bring up a good point too that the judges do have discretion under the code. I mean, back to my earlier admonition, if you have a lawyer that you've hired properly who had said in some scenarios, I would consider filing such a complaint. Have a conversation with your lawyer and, and lean on your lawyer's advice when you have a discussion that arises to, I want to recuse this judge. Because if you have a lawyer who at least has expressed a willingness to do it, you at least know that they're not just an automatic no to the concept, that they're, they're on the lookout for the right type of situation. So you can lean on that lawyer's advice. And I would really ask every listener that... You know, attorneys like myself, Myron, I mean, we've been in the courtroom so many times we can't count. Um, we've seen and heard it all. And, you know, for a litigant, every hearing is going to feel crazy and weird and, and out of control to some right. degree. Right. Um, and, you know, so just lean on your lawyers, what I would say, especially if they've expressed a willingness to do it. Just lean on their guidance because they're the ones who were there to hear it. And it's good, right? It's good for our system as a whole. Uh, it's good for society as a whole for litigants, for attorneys, um, to hold judges accountable, you know, um, because like you said, there, there shouldn't be a fear, um, because the outcome of that is not career suicide as a lot of attorneys would uh, perceive it to be. It, it actually makes the judge do his or her job better, you know? Yep. I want to uh, really quick um, give the listeners a couple of warning signs that you're dealing with a biased or prejudicial judge. Let's do it. Who's not typically faithfully complying with the law. Uh, number one is a statement that's like this. Before evidence has ever come in on a certain topic, the judge says something like, I'm not inclined to do X, Y, Z. That doesn't necessarily mean that when they say that, that you go run and file your motion recuse. Okay. I'm just giving the listeners warning signs that if these statements rise high enough, maybe coupled with other behaviors, it might be the grounds for a motion recuse. Mm -hmm. um, a judge should never tell the, the parties that they prefer a certain outcome. That's almost just textbook saying I am biased on a certain outcome. Right. And they, in my experiences, now there are probably some listeners going, why would a judge ever say that? That he's making up a scenario that has probably never happened. No, judges quite frequently will make those kinds of statements and it, it will get towards the line of recusal for me, but then they'll probably back off for the rest of the hearing. They won't say anything else. Right. right. But you start coupling with other things and it's just a good warning sign. It's just a great warning sign when you, uh, I should say great. It's a, meaningful warning sign when you hear a judge say something like that. Another example is they scold your client or they scold a party when the party's really done nothing to merit it. Now done nothing to merit it is a very subjective standard, but there are times when like that name change case where my client got scolded and she was just literally standing there. She had not even opened her mouth. She hadn't, we hadn't even introduced evidence. Right. Um, Again, listeners are probably thinking that never happens. You'd be really surprised. It happens. Um, I've got plenty of clients where this has happened. And then when it happens, it's just good to know what your toolbox is. So to our listeners out there, to wrap it up, 
Um, there is judicial bias, right? Um, and there is the remedies, um, one being the motion to accuse um, and the other being a judicial complaint. Now, when, again, we are giving you experiences that we have uh, encountered in our career, this is no way legal advice. Uh, we come from the Jackson Law Firm. Again, I'm Myron Camara. This is Justin Jackson, and this is our podcast, uh, Texas Family Law Unfiltered. Stay tuned for our next episode. Yeah, and thanks, Myron, for wrapping that up. I just want to uh, leave a few parting words that it's super important that we have an unbiased judiciary that strictly follows the law. And the only way that happens is if you have a lawyer that holds the judges accountable. And that's through these um, things we just talked about. Um, again, our office is fully willing to file them when the time properly arises, when it's warranted and necessary. And uh, thank you, Myron, for hosting. And oh, I sure. thank you. hope this episode was helpful. Yeah.